or else, you know, you would go around and you would just randomly start shooting people and hope that you kill the leader of the other team by accident. You have to spend one whole turn picking up the gun and aiming it. And these guns are not like the foam guns that you get in caching guns. They're just a little card. But that makes it so that there is still more information that can be had around the table. And you can try to convince other people, hey, don't point the gun at me. You should point it at somebody else. But in order to pick up the gun, you actually have to give up one of your integrity cards, meaning you're giving a little bit of information about who you are. You would also have to show an integrity card if you want to take another piece of equipment. So everything feels a little bit like, okay, do I really want to give up part of my identity to get this little bonus, this thing that's helpful to help progress the game? And what this really does is it makes the game actually feel more like a story because you'll actually spend a good bulk of the first part of the game just investigating. Everybody's investigating each other. Okay, I'm going to look at that person's card. I'm going to look at that person's card. But then once that first person decides to pick up a gun and aim it at somebody, that second part of the game starts and it is going to be fast until the end of the game because all of a sudden it's like, okay, how much information do I have? What equipment do I have? What can I use? If somebody's pointing a gun at me, what can I do? Well, how can I convince them to not point that gun at me? Is there an equipment that I can use? Maybe I should take another equipment card because maybe that'll save me. It's like this nice arc that happens where, okay, it's a build up, a build up, a build up, investigate, 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 and then show me what you got. And this is all in a game time of about 10 or 20 minutes. So we're not talking about a very long game here. Now, I had heard so much about this game through the early years of my gaming, but I had always heard of it as kind of this gamery social deduction game. Like it's a social deduction game that you play with other hobbyist gamers because it's so complicated. These equipment cards are so complicated. But I have to say, maybe when the first edition came out, maybe I could see what they're talking about because you definitely had people who were more familiar with what these games would entail. But if you're listening to this and you're going, okay, yeah, I've heard about that too. Don't listen to that. It seriously is so easy to pick up. The equipment is so easy to kind of get through. Okay. You can get why stealing an equipment card is useful. You can see why a card that allows you to point the guns at somebody else, why that would be helpful or why if you steal the gun from somebody else, why that would be helpful. I think that's selling people short that may be new to gaming. I don't think this game is at all hard for them to pick up. So I just wanted to get that out of the way first. Now, the next question kind of is with all of these social deduction games that are out there now, and I think that a lot of people are getting a fatigue about social deduction games because so many of them feel very, very similar. Does this actually belong in a collection. Is this anything actually particularly special? And I think that this game really boils down to the unpredictability, the fact that you can play this in multiple ways, and the fact that there are expansions. So let's start with the unpredictability thing. The equipment cards make it so that every game feels a little bit different. You don't know how somebody else is going to use their equipment. You don't know when somebody else is going to use their equipment. It allows you to bring about an, like I said, unpredictability to each and every game, not only because you can play with your equipment, but you can play the other person. You can kind of fake that you have an equipment card. Oh man, I have this card that allows me to change the gun. So you really shouldn't aim those guns at me because it's going to be useless. It allows you to kind of play this game in multiple ways, lie as much as you want. And that gets to the honesty part of it as well. 
the fact that you can play this game multiple ways really lends itself to playing with people who may be uncomfortable with games that make you lie to your friends a lot. Now, I for one don't mind it at all. I think it's part of the experience, but something that a lot of people who aren't used to this kind of game, they might get that social anxiety about it, lying in front of their friends, having to spew out something that is absolutely incredulously false. But this game, you don't actually have to lie at all. You can play as honest, and I don't mean in the honest cop sense, but you can play as honest as you want. You don't have to lie to win this game. And there's also that part of you're playing as a team. So if you necessarily do bad, it doesn't necessarily mean that your team is going to lose. It's a low pressure, low stakes situation. And even if you don't do really well, the game takes 10, 20 minutes to play. It's not like you're letting your team down because you just played for an hour. I don't know. You just reshuffle and try again. I think this game works well as an introduction to social deduction games, and I don't think it's any harder than the umpteen werewolf games that we have out there that have 20 different roles that everybody has to learn before you start because you can't explain it to them once the game starts. I think that this is great. Now, I will say that hmm, the, as easy as it is to pick up is also kind of one of the bad points of it, too. It doesn't really feel as deep as some of the other games. I guess the theme works well here in that you have like moral cops and morally corrupt cops. Like that kind of thing works well. Everybody can kind of get their head around that. And I think that that's pretty great. But it can also just feel a bit shallow. There's definitely more that needs to be there in order for me to want to play this again and again. And I think that's where the expansions come in. Now, I've heard that the expansions are good. I have not played with them. I've only played the base game so far. But I think after a few plays of this, I think I might have a couple more plays, but then I'm going to be ready to start throwing in these expansions. Try to get more involved. Maybe there's some more roles or some more equipment cards that really change things up a bit because the unpredictability is part of the fun here. The fact that they just threw out an equipment card and I read it and I go, what does that allow you to do? That's part of the fun of this game. And now that I kind of can expect what cards are going to come out kind of when, it lessens the fun a bit. And maybe part of it is just that you're going to introduce it to a new group and then you're going to have that all over again because you don't know how this new group of people are going to use those equipment cards. And it is fun seeing new people's reactions to that. Wait, you get to steal my cards? Hold on, wait a second. No way that that's what that card says. That is an entertaining thing. But I think I'm definitely going to need an expansion and it's kind of rough when I'm on a podcast and telling you, hey, this is a game that I find pretty fun, but you're going to eventually need to buy more expansions for it but luckily this game is cheap enough that you are going to be able to get it and an expansion for the same price as a lot of other standard box games so overall does good cop bad cop belong on the pantheon of social deduction games i think for a lot of people it might for me i found it good and not fantastic there's definitely ones that i prefer but this does belong on a list of social deduction games that I will absolutely not turn down if anybody wants to play. I will absolutely hop in on a game with you. It's snappy, it can be funny in the right groups, and it's unpredictable enough for me to keep wanting to come back and see just what these players are going to do this time. And that's Good Cop and Bad Cop. It originally came out in 2014, and that is designed by Brian Henk and Clayton Skunk. And the art is by Dwayne Biddix, and it's published by Overworld Games, Pull the Pin Games, and a bunch more. The next game we're going to talk about is nothing like 
good cop and bad cop. And that is Stella, part of the Dixit universe. I actually think it's like Stella colon Dixit universe on BGG. Now, I have never played Dixit, so I'm not going to be able to compare the two games at all. I am sorry. I feel like I'm failing you a bit. But hopefully you forgive me because I think I have some decent analysis on Stella. So Stella is a family party game-ish game in which you are trying to think like all of the other players at the table. So on the table in front of you will be 15 picture cards. And if you've seen Dixit cards or Mysterium cards, think in that way where they're very kind of dream-like cards. And you will be given a category. And the category might be something like summer vacation. And you and everybody else at the table need to look at those 15 picture cards and decide which ones you think best represent summer vacation or represent it at all. You can choose up to 10 of these cards, but you have to be careful because you definitely don't want to pick cards the other players don't. Once everybody picks their cards secretly on their board, you will one at a time go in a circle and pick one of the cards that you chose and say, hey, did anybody else pick this card? If other people pick that card, then you and everybody who picked that card get two points. However, if you and only one other person pick that card, you get three points. It's like a super spark, like your best friends kind of moment. But if nobody else picked that card, it says that you fall, like a fallen star. And you then get no points for the rest of the round. However, you kind of stay in because if somebody else matches you, then you say, yeah, I, I picked that card as well. Now, the interesting question is, Why would you just not pick 10 cards every single round? Well, whoever picked the most cards, like you'll have to set up and be like, okay, how many did you pick? I picked six. Okay, how about you? Oh, I picked seven. Okay. Whoever picked the most cards during that round is a kind of push your luck mechanism where you are kind of on the hot seat, if you will. I think they call it in the dark in the game. And if you fall during any time that round, All of your matches are just worth less. So instead of two points per match, they're worth one point. For a three super spark best friend moment, they're now worth two. So you really want to be careful not to pick too many cards because it is a push your luck mechanism. That might mean that even if you matched people a lot, you're going to get less points. After four rounds, whoever has the most points at the end of the game wins. And that's how you play Stella Dixit Universe. Now, I'm struggling a little bit because where to place this game is kind of hard. First of all, when I played this game, I just immediately thought of plucking pears or, uh, oh man, what's the, what's the French name? Like, Key Pair Gagne, I think. And that is a game in which you are making pairs of 10 picture cards that you have in front of you. And you have to say, okay, I think one and six are a pair and two and 10 are a pair. And if anybody else made those same pairs as you, then you both get points. And that's immediately what I thought of in this, when I was playing with this game, because it's remarkably similar. Okay, you're taking a picture, you're saying, okay, did anybody else kind of pick that same thing as I did? Kind of mentality. But ultimately, in a field of party games that have so many games that are like each other, or you can tell like, oh, I just tweaked this one rule a little bit differently, I can appreciate the originality. But where I think plucking pears succeeds is in making silly moments because it kind of entails this nervousness about people like, okay, maybe I chose that the sun 
is a pair with a baseball. And we always play that you have to describe why you chose those pairs. So it's like, okay, I chose the sun and a baseball because they're both spheres. And then when somebody else goes, yes, I made the exact same pair. There's like that, oh my goodness, relief from you. It's just a great moment that you were so much on the same point as somebody else, so much in the same mindset as somebody else. In Stella, it still feels good when you match, but it feels almost more procedural. Like, oh, did you choose this card? And it's like for a date maybe, and it's two people holding hands. And it's like, okay, yeah, everybody chose that one. Like, I guess there can be ones like that for plucking pairs as well, but it just feels a bit more, um, there's less emotions that are going into it. There's less funny moments into it. Another thing that one of the players pointed out was this is, um, I don't remember how many games that they said, but they said each game that they seem to play of this, each time they play this, they end up picking more and more cards because they start remembering that other people made these connections before. And she said that the first time she played it, it was like she was picking like three cards per round, four cards per round. You could tell because the new players to this game were doing the same thing. They were picking about three or four, kind of playing it safe. But this time she was picking eight or nine cards every round, and she ended up coming in second place because of that, even though the whole point is to make people make sure they're not picking too many cards. But that's not really the point of the game anyway. It's trying to create these sparks, right? These super sparks, the best friend moments that Stella entails. And I think that... Where plucking pairs is great at five or six, it's these moments to create an atmosphere with a lot of people, especially if people know each other and feel comfortable making fun of each other. Stella feels like a much more pleasant game. It's a game that you have an evening where maybe you have, maybe you're a couple and you have another couple over. And at that four player count, this game works wonderfully. Or maybe you're having a family game night and you don't want any bickering, you don't want a big family fight going on or anything, so you pull out Stella. And that's a great thing, well, great, maybe overstating it, but it's a good game for that reason. If you want to bring a game to a meetup with people that you don't know and it's just an easy game for people to start to get to know each other a little bit, Stella, I think, is a good game for that. I think it also works well with people that are from maybe different cultures or different speak different languages. I um like usually the categories are one or two words. So it'd be like, oh, summer vacation. And you could just easily go Natsuyasumi for Japanese. So it is easy enough to do it that way too. But overall, hmm, Stella just to me feels like this pleasant experience. It It's this in-between between, I think it works really well as a family game. This game that isn't going to ruffle too many feathers. It's not going to maybe create any memorable moments. But at the same time, it's still going to give everybody a good time. But also maybe partly a party game. I think if you're more in tune with the party game, if the party game aspect of this sounds more like it, like more what your group wants, I think finding a copy of Plucking Pairs is probably more where you should go. It just creates much more of those memorable moments. It creates more of this fun atmosphere. But that is if you know the people at the table. Stella is more the game for three or four people. Again, if you have like a couple coming over or you want to have this game with maybe some people that you're not sure how they would do in that kind of making fun of each other kind of funny atmosphere, I think Stella is a good game to bring for those moments. And for families, I think it is also a really good choice. And that's Stella Dixit Universe, designed by Gérald Catio and Jean-Louis Robila. Oh man, this is like my weekly butchering of French. And the art is Jérôme 
Pelissier, and it's published by Libellude. All right, I'm tired of doing this qualification things of like, this is a good game if you have like this, and maybe this is a game if you like this thing. No, no, no. This next game, I want you to listen to the podcast. And if you don't own it already, I want you to go on Amazon Japan or Amazon. I think they sometimes sell it in the US. And I want you to look up how much it is for you to buy a copy. Because this is boast or nothing. And it is an absolute staple in my trick-taking collection. I don't think I will ever get rid of it. This is one of the best intro trick takers out there. Okay, hold on. I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me tell you a little bit about how this game works. So Boast or Nothing is a must-follow trick-taking game, and that means that you have to follow the same suit that the start player plays. So if the start player plays a red card, everybody else needs to play a red card if they have it in their hand. But if they don't, then they can play whatever they want. Now, there are two things that make Boast or Nothing absolutely incredible. The first thing is the color rank system. So let's first say that everybody is able to play the same color. Everybody plays red, for example. Okay, then it's just standard trick taker. Whoever played the highest card wins. But if somebody is unable to play the same suit, so they break suit, then instead it goes by color rank, which are portrayed by these three discs on the table representing the three suits. You will go in order of the color rank, and the color rank shows the power. So let's say that the starting player plays a nine that is red, and the next player plays a one that is yellow. Okay, up, oh, we broke suit, so that means that we're going to be going by color rank this round. And the third player plays a five red. Okay, now we need to look at the color rank, and as it turns out, the yellow disc is on top, which means that the yellow suit is the strongest. So it doesn't matter that the first player played a red nine. It doesn't matter. The next player played a one yellow, and so they win because they played the card of the strongest suit. So they'll win that trick, and then the yellow disc goes to the bottom after that, meaning that now yellow is the weakest color suit. So this right away turns into a topsy-turvy thing, and it might have completely destroyed somebody else's plants, or maybe not. Maybe they had the foresight to know that this was going to happen. But the second thing that makes this game incredible are the pass cards that come in your hand. And the pass cards are an automatic lose of that trick. Wait, what? Why would you want to lose a trick? That doesn't make sense. Hmm, but it does. Because I haven't explained how you get points in this game. You see, depending on the player count, you want to win a different amount of tricks every round. I think in a four-player game, you want to win three tricks, and a three-player game, you want to win two tricks or something like that. I have to look at the rules. I should have done that more preparation in terms of this podcast. I'm sorry. If you get that amount of tricks, then you get one point. But there is also a shoot-the-moon mechanism in which... If you don't win any tricks for that whole round, you get two points. And it's the first player to get to the top of the checkered line, I think it's five points or six points total, wins the game. So what this means is that you might really, really, really want to win some tricks, but you might want to save that pass card for when you've already won the three tricks that you need to win that round. You definitely want to lose at some point. So let's get to the gameplay analysis. Because why does this work so well as an introductory trick taker? That is really hard to say really fast. Well, this game works so well because 
the actual skeleton of the game is not very hard to put your head around. Okay, so you're telling me a majority of the time, if I can play the same colored suit, play that, and the highest color wins. Okay, or the highest number wins, right? But if I don't, then it's the color. And it gives you a nice little visual cue there too. It's never going to be a, what was the Trump? What is the Trump thing? No, you can just see the tower and see like, okay, the yellow is on top right now. So if I have a yellow, then great. I have the strongest card at the moment. And the fact that this changes over and over again kind of helps swing things a little bit. There's not somebody who's probably going to be able to completely predict how the colors are going to swap in powers and when. And this keeps the game interesting. It keeps people wanting to play it again and try to get better at it. Because the skeleton is not anything overly complicated, It, and I know I talk about this a lot when I'm talking about introductory games, it gives you a chance to develop your skills. You can see how you get better. Right away, you might be able to better read your hand if this is a round that you want to go to win the three tricks or to win zero. And this is such a useful skill to bring into other trick-taking games, that ability to read your hand, that ability to say, okay, I don't really have that many yellows, so maybe I don't want yellow to be the most powerful for very long, and if it is, I want it to flip around and become the weakest so that my other cards are stronger. Or somebody can't just snipe a trick from me. Or maybe if I don't want to win tricks, I want to make sure that I play that very small amount of yellows that I have when yellow is the weakest. Timing is so important to learn in these kind of games to get better at it that Boast or Nothing gives you a good sense of when to do it. It helps develop that skill. Now, the other question is, well, okay, you say it's a good introductory trick taker. Is it good if I already enjoy trick takers? What if I have a large collection? Do I really need another one? Especially ones that you keep saying like has this very basic structure to it. And my thing is, yes. Because so often you are not only playing the cards in your hand, you are playing the other people at the table. What are they doing? You need to read them. Are they also trying to shoot the moon? Because if you were trying to shoot the moon, but no, wait, they also seem to be trying to shoot the moon. Do I need to pivot? It's almost like a game of trick-taking chicken. And because there's no way you're both going to get it, and you definitely don't want to let the third person or the fourth person start getting their exact amount of tricks because any points is better than no points, right? It's also a game that never feels like it takes too long. And that is so much appreciated too. It actually comes in at a more filler length than I think some of the other trick takers that we've talked about in this podcast. I know we talked about Papayu last week. Papayu feels like it takes so much longer than Boast or Nothing does that Boast or Nothing has just become a game that I bring in my quiver. It's like, okay, you know what? Do we have 20, 30 minutes? We just want a light little thing? All right, let's play Boast or Nothing. It is the perfect game for that. The perfect end of the game night treat. Something you don't have to think too hard about, but it still is a nice little bow on top because it is just a nice, sweet little game. I cannot tell you how much I recommend Boast or Nothing. It's really rare that I give anything above an eight, to be honest, and maybe that just gives me a stickler. I really do enjoy games. But I think this one probably sits at an eight and a half or a nine for me. I enjoy it so much and I have used it so successfully to get people into trick taking. And that is Boast or Nothing, designed by Yeon Min Jung, and the art is by Mr. Misang, and it's published by Sunnybird.
And that is going to be it for our show. Thank you so much for joining us for another Monday review episode. On Wednesday, we are going to be talking about the psychology of parasocial relationships, and that is a listener request. So keep them coming. If you want to request a future episode topic, please email us at boardgamedojopodcast at gmail.com or let us know on Instagram or Twitter. Twitter is at the BG Dojo and Instagram is at Board Game Dojo. Also, be sure to check out our YouTube. We are going to be ramping up the content on that as well, so stay tuned. Thank you so much for joining us as always. Arigatou gozaimashita. Until next time, jane. Ja